If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. And the text is right there on the next page of the bulletin if you need that. Uh, we have a bit of a long lead up to the content of this passage. It's going to be a few minutes before I get actually to what's going on right here. We're going to build some context first. Uh, so with that idea of an extended introduction in mind, uh, we're going to get right into it. We're going to pray, and then we'll read the scripture together. So <clears throat> let's pray. Father, what could be more important than hearing what you have to say to us? You have spoken by your son, and we ask now that you would please help us to hear by your spirit's work in us as we consider your word together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when they came to the crowd... A man came up to him, to Jesus, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we are in a section of Matthew's Gospel that focuses on the theme of sonship. This is not the first time recently that we've been looking at the idea of sonship, and it will not be the last time. Uh, And uh, so really what this is saying, what Matthew's Gospel is saying, and especially in this section, is that Jesus is the beloved Son. He's just been identified as that again. By, uh, by the voice that came out of the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Heavenly Father's voice speaking through the Spirit. Jesus is the beloved Son, and He graciously brings His people into that same relationship so that we are called sons. This is a central theme of the whole Bible, really, not just this part of Matthew's Gospel or uh, just a part of the New Testament or anything like that. This is a central theme of the whole Bible. The living God who has revealed himself in the scriptures, this God is a God of sonship. There's nothing more essential to who God is than that he is a God of sonship. The triune God is Father and Son, united in the spirit of sonship. And this God of sonship created all humanity for a relationship of sonship. Adam and Eve were originally created. Our first parents were originally created, it says, in God's image, after his likeness. That means like offspring. Adam is called the son of God, and the Bible follows his sons. It follows the generations 
of those who are in Adam's likeness. His descendants, the generations of his descendants. In the Bible, a generation, that word shows up, it's a way of talking about that relationship of sonship. Uh, In Greek, the word uh, that's behind it here, as we see it in verse 17, uh, in Greek, the word is closely related to the words for origin and birth and begetting. Right? So it's not just a way of talking about a group of people who are roughly the same age. We don't, you know, the way we usually use the word generation these days is shorthand for people who were born in this general time, this era, you know, Gen, Gen X or whatever it is. It's not just a way of talking about a group of people like that. It's used, the word generation is used to convey the idea of being generated, being begotten. Right? And inheriting a likeness to the one who generated us. Because that's what happens when you're, you're generated, is you take the likeness of the one who generated you. God's eternal generation of his only begotten son, that's the pattern for the creation of humanity. God created us, he generated us, he begat us, if you're reading, you know, the old King James or something. Uh, like his own children, to bear his image, to be like his only begotten son, and to commune with him in glorious love, like his only begotten son has always done. Uh, But we've corrupted that image through our sin. We've not lived like children of God. Humanity's generation became uh, distorted and crooked and malformed. Uh, A twisted generation. It shows up several times in the scriptures that way. Jesus uses that term here, a twisted generation like children who are born uh, stunted and disfigured and don't look like their parents. All generations proceeding from Adam have been twisted by uh, by faithlessness, faithlessness deformed in our unbelief, our lack of faith in God, who is our creator and not just that, our father. Every particular sin that we commit Every single transgression of God's word is a violation of that relationship of sonship that God has intended for us. But he's the God of sonship, and he's been working to restore what we have corrupted. He's working to restore that relationship. Time and again throughout the history of our race, as we see it revealed in the scriptures, God has called people back to himself, back to this relationship of sonship. Uh, most, most notably, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> God called the people of Israel to this relationship. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He's talking about the people of Israel, and he calls them his son, corporately. So what we have in the Exodus, you read about this there, Yahweh delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt And that means he was generating them, begetting them, fathering a new people to enter into this special relationship of sonship with him. But they, too, were malformed by their faithlessness. They did not live like the children of God. Uh, They did not trust God as their good father. They complained about everything that he was doing and eventually just refused to follow him altogether. And so... So you have our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 32, which Bill read, which I think is worth uh, giving attention to again, so I'll read it again. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, 
A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, speaking of God's people, they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Yahweh saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. You see that theme in every verse. Yahweh's people rebelled against him, and so the deformity of faithlessness persisted even among those who were supposed to be generated as a new son for him until God sent his only begotten son into the world to perfect a new generation of humanity in himself, to bring humanity into the glorious sonship of God that, that uh, God has always intended for us, to restore the image and the likeness of the Father in us. So Jesus is the Son of God in both his natures. We've talked recently about the two natures, the importance of the two natures of Jesus, that he is both God and man fully. He's the Son of God because he is the eternally begotten divine Son. And Jesus is also the Son of God as a created human being, as one of us. And it's in his own humanity that he's restored this special relationship of sonship for us. And he has come not just to be the son for himself, but to share that sonship with his people. To welcome us into that relationship. And so Jesus is uniquely the only begotten son of God, but he came, as the writer of Hebrews says, to bring many sons to glory. And by that language, sons, he's not excluding women's sons and daughters, children, but in the place of the son himself in that relationship to God. He came to establish a new generation of the children of God through, um, through adoption. He's the begotten, we're the adopted. Bringing those who were not children to become children of God. That's what we've seen him doing throughout Matthew's gospel, especially as he grants his own disciples to share in various aspects of his own life and his mission. Uh, most relevant to our passage, almost done with the lead up, to our passage. Thanks for hanging with me. Uh, most relevant is when back in chapter 10, we read about Jesus giving the disciples his own authority to heal people, his own authority to cast out demons in his name. This is the work of the Son of God in the world, right? setting people free from demonic oppression and slavery, restoring wholeness and life to people in a renewed relationship with God. So the Son came to restore the sonship of our twisted generation, to heal our faithlessness and the effects of our sin by his own faithfulness. That's the work that he came to do. And that work meant involving us in the work of sons. If he's restoring our sonship, it means we join him in what the Son does in the world. That's what it means to join Jesus in the life of sonship, to join him in what he's doing. So... Jesus shared not only his good work with us, with his disciples, he shared the power to do this work 
with his disciples. That's what we read about in Matthew 10. And as you might imagine, there was some excitement when the disciples discovered that they could heal people in Jesus' name. They could cast out demons in Jesus' name with his own authority. But even though they had participated in his work before with great success, even his disciples, well, they fail here. They continue to fail in their unbelief. This passage comes in uh, Matthew 17. It comes in a section that is focused on the sonship of Christ and him sharing the sonship with us. But this section also highlights the disciples' frequent failure. That's what you find in pretty much every paragraph here, is the disciples fail to understand Jesus. They fail to trust Jesus. They fail to follow Jesus. Jesus came to bring many sons to glory, but the disciples are constantly failing to live like glorious children of God. That's the story of our humanity. This generation is faithless and twisted, even those who spend a lot of time with Jesus. If you see continuing faithlessness in yourself, if you see continuing faithlessness in others in the church, uh, that can be very upsetting, and it is not a good thing. And there's no excuse for it, but don't be dismayed. This is how the scriptures portray the disciples in our utter need for Jesus as those who struggle with faithlessness. So now, now finally we get to this account of a father and a son. And there's something deeply wrong with the son. He suffers demonic oppression that has even affected him bodily. It's affected his whole world, his whole life. He loses control of himself and his life is falling apart. To the point of self-destruction. And really this account is about an earthly father and his broken son. But it's also about the heavenly father and his broken sons. And the restoration of sonship that is only found in Jesus. That only Jesus can accomplish. The son who has uh, this demon-induced epilepsy. You know, it's a picture of the children of God in their twisted generation who suffer the effects of sin in this broken world, this world we've broken through our own sin that affects us bodily and in every way. So this father comes to Jesus with a son, and the son needs his mercy. And the disciples had failed, and Jesus was the only one who could help. Because the main point of this whole thing is Jesus coming to restore our sonship. The first thing he does is actually not healing the earthly father's son. He gets to that pretty shortly, but it's not the first thing he does when he finds out that his disciples have failed. The first thing Jesus does is address the heavenly father's faithless sons. Because that's what this is about. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Then he says, bring him here to me. So Jesus, uh, when he says this, I mean, it's a rebuke. He's certainly not rebuking the father who has asked for help. Who's he rebuking? He isn't rebuking even you know, sinful people in general. He isn't even rebuking those who have openly opposed him. You know, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and 
those people. He's rebuking his disciples. The focus of this story is what's going on with his disciples in their sonship as the, the twisted generation. <clears throat> as with all the generations of fallen humanity, these two, even though they're dis- disciples, his disciples, even though they've spent lots of time with Jesus, got to know Jesus, <clears throat> they fail in their faithlessness. They fail to participate in Christ's sonship, and they need to be healed and restored as sons. They need Jesus, who is the true son, to have mercy on them, to do something for them that no one else can do for them, that they cannot do for themselves, just like this father needed Jesus to have mercy on his son to do something that no one else could do. The son was ruled by a demon, needed to be set free. The son's life was miserable and in constant danger of uncontrollable self-destruction. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. So Jesus can do the impossible. What's impossible for anybody else? Just like this father needed Jesus to deliver and heal his son, the disciples need Jesus to save them and heal their sonship. Apart from Jesus, we are a faithless and twisted generation, children who have not grown properly in our relationship with God because of our unbelief. The healing of the demon-oppressed son is a picture of the healing that we all need to be free from all the power of the devil, to be free from the insanity of sin and its self-destructiveness, to be free from even fear and death itself, to be restored to life with our Father in heaven, to be renewed as a generation of the children of God. Uh, His disciples wouldn't understand this. They wouldn't believe it. Uh, for quite some time yet, they were, they were just wondering why their attempted exorcism didn't work. Right? They come to Jesus privately and say, why could we not cast it out? It's a good question. We might think it's a legitimate confusion that they have, considering that they had enjoyed previous success in similar matters before. We've done this before. Why could we not do this? Why could they cast out other demons but not this one? If Jesus had given them authority to do his work, why didn't it work this time? What was different about this time from other times when it had worked? We're not given a lot of details. Uh, Mark gives us a little bit more detail in his account than Matthew does uh, when, when Jesus tells them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Only God has complete authority over the spiritual realm, over heaven and earth. Only God can save us from ourselves, from what we've brought upon ourselves through our own sin. You've got to depend on God. You've got to rely on God. You've got to trust God and ask God for help, which is what this father is doing when he asks Jesus for help. Jesus expects us to come to him for help because he's the only one who can help. Asking Jesus to help is the same thing as coming to God for help, as praying to God for help. Because Jesus is the only God, the only Savior. We need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, what no one else can do for us. When we look at this particular failure of the disciples, you know, we're, we're looking for details that explain what was it? What was different? Why did they fail now and here? What? We might not be able to identify something specific. We might not be able to pinpoint something and say, oh, yeah, yeah, the disciples failed this time because 
uh, they were taking his power for granted. Uh, or, yeah, they, they'd failed this time because their motives were impure. Or they failed this time because they used the wrong exorcism formula. That was recorded, right? Or, you know, they failed this time because they weren't in complete agreement together. Anything like that. We can't make judgments like that. We're not given the details to make sense of their failure to make our own judgment about it. The only thing we really have to go on is what Jesus says. His understanding, his explanation, his judgment of the situation. Jesus is the only one who can answer the question, what's wrong with us? Jesus is the only one who can answer the question, what's wrong with me? Jesus reveals what true sonship is, and Jesus tells us what's wrong with us as a twisted generation. And here, Jesus identifies the problem. We're not given details so that we can make that judgment ourselves. Jesus just says what was going on in their hearts was unbelief. Jesus' disciples failed because of their unbelief, he says. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. So when Jesus says the disciples have little faith, it's because of your little faith. That's one word. It's an interesting word. The original Greek shows up very rarely. Um, And it doesn't just mean a faith that is little. Or a faith that is weak. It can't mean that. Clearly, he's not just accusing them of having small faith. Because he says, even the smallest faith... Faith like a grain of a mustard seed is mountain-moving faith that can do the impossible. They failed. So it's not even a faith the size of a mustard seed, apparently. It's not little faith. When he says they failed to do his work because of their little faith, which is a word that we have a hard time, I think, translating because it shows up so infrequently, it really means something more like impoverished faith or lacking faith. It's, it's, really, it's unbelief. He's already called them faithless which is just as strong a term, if not stronger. It's their unbelief. The unbelief of the disciples. So, you know, I'm not sure we can say the disciples were entirely unbelieving, that uh, unbelief was the only thing going on in their hearts because they have a relationship with Jesus, right? We've seen them confess true things about Jesus. But we can certainly say that they failed here because of their unbelief, because that's what Jesus says. That's his judgment. Unbelief is somehow a reality, somehow still a major factor, even for those who have spent a lot of time with Jesus, who have gotten to know him. And again, if we turn to Mark's account, uh, we see a little bit more detail. We can see something remarkable as the father who's asking uh, Jesus for help with his son. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Right, so the disciples here. They might truly believe some things about Jesus, sometimes a little bit, right? Uh, But even the adopted children of God will be plagued by unbelief. We need the only begotten Son of God to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to help us in our unbelief, to restore us to a sonship that is characterized by true faith and faithfulness. We need Jesus to heal us, 
to set us free so that we can depend on God. Something as simple as that, so we can rely on God and trust God and ask God for help to live as faithful children. We need Jesus to do something in us so that we'll love his will, love his work in the world, and join him in it. We need Jesus to bear with us, to endure this faithless and twisted generation. And the good news is, this is exactly what Jesus came to do and has done. He came to be with us and to bear with us, even though our faithlessness was exasperating and painful to him. As uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the saying is trustworthy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Yes, Jesus indicates the, the difficulty of being with us and bearing with us when he first asks that question. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus does not like our faithlessness. God does not like our sin. But it does not stop him from blessing us. It does not stop him from being with us and bearing with us. It does not stop him from being the faithful son that he is. Even though Jesus is frustrated with the unbelief of this generation, even his own disciples, he still bears with his disciples. He still does that. He still helps when asked. That's what he's done here. He still drives out the demon. He still heals the boy. He still gathers his disciples together. He still answers their questions with patience. He still goes all the way to the cross for our salvation. He never throws his hands up in exasperation and says, you know, I've had enough. I give up. I'm done with you. He never walks away from us. He remains committed to restoring our sonship. How long would he be with us? How long would he bear with our unbelief? Until it killed him. As they were gathering in Galilee, it says, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So Jesus knows us uh, better than we could possibly know ourselves. He knows our faithlessness and our unbelief, and he endured it faithfully, loving the faithless until it killed him. That's what it was to go to the cross. In fact, Jesus would bear with us not just to the point of his own death, but beyond that. Beyond his death. The disciples, they're still tormented by their own unbelief. Primarily, they can't perceive the good news in this. Not yet. When Jesus is predicting this, they can't hear past the death part. that He's going to be delivered in the hands of men and suffer and die. They can't hear past that to the part about the resurrection. They couldn't process the implications of the resurrection, how that transforms the meaning of his death. Even after his resurrection, they still couldn't process it. That's what you find in all of the Gospels. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, his disciples could not process what it meant. Even after seeing Jesus alive again several times, they were still distressed. They were still afraid, and they locked themselves in that upper room for fear. 
They failed to understand the true sonship of Jesus, and they failed to participate in that sonship through their unbelief, even after they saw the risen Lord Jesus. If witnessing the resurrection of the beloved son from the dead was not enough, what will heal the sonship of a twisted generation? Regeneration. Jesus tells us that we need to be born again spiritually. We need the spirit of sonship to come upon us and to enter into us and to make us alive to God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul calls this spirit of Christ the spirit of adoption. The generation of the children of God, the healing of the faith and faithfulness of the disciples only happened when the spirit of Jesus The spirit of the beloved son, the spirit of adoption, came upon them at Pentecost when they were anointed with Jesus' own anointing. Then they began to celebrate and proclaim the work of God in Christ. That's when they began to participate in the son's work in the world without fear. When the crucified, risen, and ascended son sends his spirit to unite us to himself, he's pouring the love of God into our very hearts. He causes us to cry out to God truly as children to the Father. He causes us to depend and rely and trust on God. He, he frees us from the self-destructiveness of our sin. He frees us from the devil's power of fear and death. He heals our sonship and he renews us in his image. So now by the spirit of sonship who's alive in us, We have this, even this little tiny bit of faith to move mountains. So that's not literal, right? Uh, That's an old Hebrew saying for, you know, moving mountains is like resolving very difficult problems. Impossibly difficult problems. Uh, Jesus is definitely not saying, if you only believe hard enough, if you have great enough faith, then you can get everything you ever wanted from God. That's literally not what he says. He explicitly says it's not about great faith, even the smallest faith. Even the smallest faith will move mountains because even the smallest faith comes from the Holy Spirit of Christ in us, which is one of the most inconceivably profound things that could ever possibly happen to sinners like us. That's the real impossibility that faith makes possible. The real mountain, the immense problem that we need to be resolved How do you renew a twisted generation of faithless sons? You've got to hear the call of God through the prophet Jeremiah. It says, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. And this kind of thing can only be done by prayer. So you go to Jesus and you ask Jesus to have mercy on you. You ask Jesus to regenerate you. By his spirit of sonship, you see Christ's glorious sonship and you receive it and you receive a new relationship with the father in his name, one where you aren't just stuck with your old crooked unbelief only anymore, but where you really participate in the faith and the faithfulness of the son with Christ and only with Christ, it's possible to restore our sonship to God. And even the tiniest bit of true faith, true dependence on him, true trust in him, will move that mountain 
Because the power to move a mountain, the power to renew a generation and bring many sons to God does not actually reside in our faith. The power resides in Jesus, the faithful son. So go to him and let him heal your faithlessness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it can be hard for us to admit that you know us better than we know ourselves, that you alone are our judge, and that you alone know what's wrong with us as human beings. We pray that you would transform this experience from one that is difficult for us into one that is encouraging to us. As we realize that you know us, but you've not walked away from us. You've moved toward us ever closer and closer through your Son and through the Spirit of your Son. Lord Jesus, you've made true sonship known to us and you've opened this life to us. Again, we pray that you would have mercy on us. That you would do what no one else can do and save us from ourselves. We pray, Holy Spirit... Holy Spirit of adoption, fill us with the Son's life. Heal our faithlessness. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to live by the faith and faithfulness of the Son of God himself who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.